everybody. Welcome back. This is Ask an Addiction Specialist, and I'm here with my co-producers, Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatierra. Thank you, gentlemen. And I'm Dr. Bob Weathers. Very happy to be back with you. This is now our sixth podcast, and so we have archives, uh, archived podcasts available on this site, uh, Ask an Addiction Specialist, through Facebook, and I recommend that you review those. I'll be referencing those as we go along today, but it's good to have you back with us. The, uh, uh, the umbrella term for our work is plural recovery, and the idea is, is whether we're working with uh, individuals who themselves are seeking recovery from addiction, or loved ones of those individuals um, who are either in active addiction still or are, are in recovery, and also with professionals that work with them, helping professionals that work with individuals seeking recovery. This is meant for all of us, and the idea of plural is that it takes a village. It takes all of us to cooperate and participate with each other to maximize the chances of a successful and sustained recovery. So in that spirit then, today's presentation conversation is uh, maybe the most illustrative of what I mean by plural recovery. Our focus today will be on addiction, relationships, and recovery. Yes, addiction, relationships, and recovery. What I'd like to do is review our very first pilot presentation. Many of you uh, didn't see that, and we were, we were rusty. We were working out some of the kinks. So I want to review some of that information today, talking about uh, what goes on in the brain, both in active addiction and in early recovery. I want to review that material, as well as do something that we didn't do in that earliest presentation, which was tie it more directly into plural recovery, namely looking at what, not only what happens to the brain uh, of, of the individual in addiction and in recovery, but also, I guess you could say, in the brains of those around them, which is to say, how does uh, addiction and recovery impact relationship? Our entry point into that conversation will be looking at uh, the impact on the brain of addiction and recovery. Uh, so just by way of review, and uh, I guess I want to pause here for a second to say that when I review this information this week, I'm aware that, that uh, going back and revisiting information for me, and I hope for you too, is never necessarily redundant. Even in the weeks since that initial presentation, there's additional clarity that I feel with the material. I hope to convey that to you today. And I think there's value of, of um, I think of it sometimes as a spiraling process, spiraling through the information again and again until not only do we know it by heart, but also that we subject it to critical thinking and it gets clearer, gets richer and hopefully more applicable to you. So I'm happy to review that information, starting off with talking about the fact that all addictions affect the same brain changes. And this isn't necessarily conventional knowledge. There are people, for example, I've, I've come over the, the, the years to refer to the addiction to substances as to alcohol and other drugs. And you'll oftentimes hear a distinction made between alcohol on the one hand and drugs on the other. And I think that's a false distinction. Uh, is that I think alcohol is a drug. Uh, for that matter, so is nicotine. And I'm fine uh, working with that and calling it AOD, alcohol and other drugs. And not only do alcohol and other drugs make for uh, the same changes in the brain, which we're going to delineate here shortly, but also behavioral addictions. Sometimes you'll read about these referred to as process addictions. Our behavioral addictions also affect the same brain systems and involve the same brain chemicals. And so there's anything that I say today about 
addiction in the context of substance will apply equally to a behavior. So I think what this does is this opens up the conversation and I'll just review something that I mentioned in an earlier uh, podcast is that 25% of U.S. Uh, citizens are currently addicted to alcohol and other drugs. That's one out of four. Um, uh, if, if we include nicotine, and nicotine uh, has as much damaging effects on the on the body, the uh, the brain, as do any of the other substances, and so uh, that's a startling statistic. If you stop and think about it, one out of the four Americans are addicted to substance. Now, if we open this up to look at research that came out just in the last year, is that a nationwide study surveyed Americans in terms of their addiction to various behaviors. And this this includes addiction to uh, pornography, addiction to gambling, addiction to food, um, addiction to the internet. Uh, It's a very serious addiction for some people, the compulsive, I'm sitting in a computer room with people nodding their heads. And then what we found in this study is that 90% of respondents, these are adults across the United States, 90% said that they currently have at least one behavioral addiction. And as I teasingly say sometimes, I think the other 10% either misunderstood the question or were too scared to be honest. And it's just to say that it's no great compliment to oneself and it's certainly there's certainly a lot of stigma associated with addiction. And so why would I admit to it, right? So if, if we open up addiction to include not only substance addiction, but also behavioral addiction or process addiction, it's well my universal. And I think what this does is that, that we, we can enter into a conversation then where all of us are included uh, in the conversation. And I think it's a very, in the, in the context of that kind of prevalence, I think it uh, can be uh, really startling, uh, at least it was early on for me to, to realize that the very same brain systems, the very same brain chemicals are involved across the board in addictions. So this should be of interest to all of us, basically. There are three brain changes that you really need to know if you're going to understand what happens in the brain around addiction. And these three brain changes are themselves a direct result of addiction. And also, ironically, uh, maybe not surprisingly to you, these three brain changes, they actually contribute to further addiction as well. So not only are they caused by addiction, but they actually lead to further addiction. So a way to understand this is that in active addiction, the poor get poorer. The way I think about this is a, is a vicious cycle in the brain, is that once addicted, there are changes in my brain that actually create uh, neural pathways that make me much more vulnerable to addiction. This won't be completely a depressing presentation. I actually in, in, intend to include some information that can be very helpful, but I think, it can be, uh, I think it can be very sobering, no pun intended, to really go deeply into what happens in our brains around addiction. So let's talk about the first brain change here. There's a numbed pleasure response as a function of addiction, which itself leads to further addiction. The structure in the brain that is referred to as the pleasure center of the brain is the nucleus accumbens. It's not imperative that you know that, but the nucleus accumbens is dramatically activated by addictive behaviors, including ingestion of substances early on. And what what you get is you get a, a heightened pleasure response early on, but that that numbs out soon enough. And so to, let me explain the mechanism of that. 
Our brains and bodies like to sustain a kind of homeostasis, and that's a fancy word for balance. Our bodies like to stay in balance. But when you throw in something that is as powerful a stimulant for pleasure as any of the substances and all of the behaviors that I've mentioned before and others that I haven't mentioned, what you get is you get a uptick in terms of pleasure and the body needs to balance that out because now it's out of balance. There's too much pleasure activation in the brain. And so what gets injected into the system within the body in, in favor of retaining, uh, restoring balance is the stress hormone cortisol. This process of rebalancing when things get out of whack is referred to medically as allostasis, bringing in another substance to rebalance things. This, by the way, would be the explanation of withdrawal syndrome, is that no matter what substance, and in case many behaviors, I, I'll give you a, a fairly common example. Think about, I think about 80 or 90% of Americans drink caffeine on a daily basis. And think about what happens if you stop drinking caffeine one morning. It'll manifest as the jitters, headaches, other kinds of symptoms, uh, irritability. And so it is with all of the substances and also with all of the behaviors. And so what you've got is you have the body having compensated for this stimulant, namely caffeine, and it comes in with a counterbalancing agent. You pull the caffeine out of the system and the body and the psyche run, a, run amok uh, for a period of days until they rebalance. Very much the same with alcohol, very much the same with nicotine, very much the same with any of the compulsive behaviors that we refer to as, as process addictions. So one of the features of having a numbed pleasure response the body's trying to set itself is that things that used to give us pleasure no longer do. The psychological term for that phenomenon is anhedonia. It's an easy enough word to understand. An means not, like anaerobic exercise, and hedonia is tied into hedonism, which is pleasure, so not pleasure. And so anhedonia ends up uh, becoming more and more the case for the person that's, that's addicted and actually uh, becomes part of the motivation, as I mentioned earlier, to continue with the addictive behaviors or consuming the addictive substances in order to feel some, some modicum of normalcy. And so you move from anhedonia, feeling flat, to trying to take in more and more substance to be able to feel normal. The fact of the matter is you feel less and less pleasure. And anybody who's been addicted, uh, I, I work a lot with individuals who've been addicted to substances like heroin and methamphetamine. It's a universal acknowledgement of anhedonia. They know exactly what that's like. And, and at some point you stop so much getting high as you do uh, just trying to not be sick. And being sick means to be in withdrawal. In effect, what happens is that this part of the brain, in this case, the pleasure center of the brain is hijacked. Where normal pleasures used to work, they don't work anymore. And the pleasure system is thrown um, out of now I want to ask a question for you all and I'm going to ask you to take a moment to uh, journal your thoughts here. So I'd like you to get a piece of paper or if you're at a computer, uh, maybe draw, bring up a, a blank note on your, on your computer screen. The question I have for you is how does this particular brain change? We're talking about a numbed pleasure response. How might this impact relationship? If you've been addicted or if you've been in a relationship to somebody who's actively addicted, it probably won't be theoretical for you. But if you can't call up something based on personal experience, just imagine into it. If my or your pleasure response is numbed out, if it's muted, how is that going to show up in the context, particularly of our most meaningful relationships? Parent to child, partner to partner, friend to friend. I give a minute right now for you to write down your thoughts and then we'll summarize uh, some examples in just a moment.
I hope you got a, a couple, three examples uh, to work with. I think it can help to have some skin in the game. That's why I'm encouraging some time to, to write down a few thoughts. Uh, I wrote down uh, the first three examples that came to mind, and honestly, this, these were fresh for me because I had just led a group, in fact, last Friday, where we talked into this area of, of a numbed pleasure response. And uh, one of the first people to speak said that what happens for him is that when, when he's experiencing this kind of flatland experience, he knows that he, that he shows dead eyes to his girlfriend. And I asked him to describe that. I think we all know what that is. There's just a flatness in the eyes. There's no longer any delight or pleasure or engagement, any spark in their relationship. And so that was the first thing that, that he mentioned. And I think that that's a good place for us to start. There ends up in, uh, infecting their relationship, a kind of deadness or a flatness. Then the next item is related to that, a lack of passion. I remember now my response to this individual. I said that that there's a, a well-known psychologist who said that we all long more than anything else to be uh, the gleam in our mother's eye. <laughs> and just that image of being the gleam in someone's eye. And when that gleam is gone, what that feels like. And all of us have been on the receiving end of that. And many of us, especially those of us who have uh, been in addiction, have been on the giving end of that. So there's a lack of spark, a lack of passion. And then the term in psychology is just flatness of affect. There's just ends up being a flatness. Keep referring to that. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. As, as we talk about depression, we typically think about depression as being sadness. And certainly depression can manifest as sadness. But uh, as often, if not more so, depression will manifest in the body as what are referred to as vegetative signs. And one of those signs is a, uh, a flatness. It's not even sadness. For some people that are depressed to feel something, including sadness, would be preferable than to experiencing just this absolute bland flatness. And so you can imagine the impact uh, uh, in relationship um, of, of just this particular brain change, a numbing of pleasure and how that manifests interpersonally. And especially when that's habitual or chronic, the erosion that that brings to relationship. The second brain change is increased craving. This locates itself, or originates at least, in the brain area called the ventral tegmental area. Uh, both the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area are roughly between my ears. And so we'll be talking about the part of our brain that's up front when we talk about the third brain change, but we're talking about two that are in the lower uh, part of the brain right now, sometimes referred to as the midbrain. This also represents kind of the emotional center of the brain. It's also referred to as the reward center of the brain. So there's a lot going on deep in our brain that is... Uh, precognitive, that is to say that we don't have access to it mentally or verbally, but it's going on nonetheless. And so another change that goes on in this mid part of the brain is an increase in craving. So let's talk about the mechanism of that increased craving. We have to introduce the neurotransmitter dopamine. I was discussing neurotransmitters uh, a week or two ago in one of the groups that I lead. One of the clients used the word a synapse. And so someone else said, well, what's a synapse, Dr. Bob? And the way I talk about it is a synapse is that you have these two nerve cells. They come together like this. There's a gap between them. And there's a gap between all these cells that in order to, for a, a nerve impulse to jump that gap, there needs to be some kind of substance in there. That's called a neurotransmitter. And there are a number of neurotransmitters. In, Many of these we're familiar with just from the literature. For example, serotonin is a very familiar uh, neurotransmitter that's associated with mood, hence the, the uh, serotonin, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs, that help to mediate the, that neurotransmitter. Well, another one of these neurotransmitters, and it's directly related to craving, is dopamine. 
Dopamine release is connected to two different properties, and I want to talk about each briefly here. The first one is salience, and that's the technical term that biologists use for, for anything that has evolutionary significance in terms of survival of the organism. That's referred to as something that has salience. So, for example, uh, dopamine increases in the presence or in the search for food because food obviously is connected to our survival. The same with water. Another one that may, might be less obvious but is definitely connected with increases in dopamine release is sex. And so I'll ask my clients, why is that? And at this point, they've learned this material well enough to know to, to, to volunteer up the answer, which is that evolutionarily, our genes want to continue, want to perpetuate themselves. Sex, sexual contact, sexual uh, reproduction is intrinsic to that transmission of genes. And so it becomes very much associated, if not with our, our own personal survival, certainly with the, the survival of my or your genetic lines, hence dopamine release. A connected feature with dopamine, in a distance of salience, is what's referred to as incentive. And all I mean by this is that, is that with the release of dopamine, it's a high motivator incentive. It creates incentive. That leads us to the next term, is that with, with addictive behaviors, and we'll talk specifically about some substances in just a moment, um, with addictive behaviors, including ingestions of substance or other behaviors that kick up our dopamine levels, you have this phenomenon referred to as incentive sensitization. And let me, I think the best way I can describe what insensitive sensitization is, is by actually fleshing it out with specific substances. So on this slide, you see a summary of the research being done right now up, up the way at UCLA by Dr. Richard Rawson, where he compares a number of behaviors and substances and talks about them in terms of, of how they multiply exponentially the release of, of dopamine. So this is the way that Dr. Rawson talks about it. If you can imagine that in your normal resting state, your normal baseline level of dopamine release is a one. That if you introduce a sexual response, specifically sexual orgasm, it doubles that dopamine level. Uh, because dopamine connects indirectly uh, to the pleasure center of the brain, it's associated with pleasure. It's also associated with great incentive, and so we seek out sexual partners, and that's because it's twice the level of dopamine. But follow this chart down for just a second, and you'll see, you'll, see, you'll begin to understand what incentive sensitization looks like, is that if sex doubles my normal resting baseline of dopamine release, my ingesting cocaine quadruples it. Thank you. We have a question that's come in, and I'll get to that in just about five minutes. Cocaine quadruples my normal baseline level. And so I become, uh, there's a high incentive for returning to cocaine. And actually, the brain gets sensitized such that the cocaine actually has more of an inviting or a compelling quality than does sex, than does food. This begins to help us understand why people will avoid uh, eating or avoid relationships in favor of seeking a high from a substance because it's, the dopamine levels are uh, so uh, pronounced with the with ingestion of substances. How about if we add the substance of heroin, 10 times the baseline level? And then the one that increases the dopamine levels the highest, according to Dr. Rawson, is methamphetamine, 12 times the normal dopamine level. Can you imagine how it is then that anything in terms of a normal reinforcer could possibly compete with that? 
in terms of incentive sensitization, what happens is I get sensitized to this substance and the impact it has on my dopamine system and it effectively trumps every other motivation. How this works in the brain is this way. Dopamine is released in the middle of my brain. It actually goes up towards the nucleus accumbens and into the frontal lobes. My frontal lobes send back another substance, another neurotransmitter called glutamate. Glutamate basically locks into memory what it is, whatever it is that stimulated the dopamine at that level. So I'm remembering just now a client that I saw 15 years ago uh, from the East Coast who had never done any drugs at all in high school, went to high school graduation, did meth once, and was instantly hooked at that point. That's an example of one-time uh, incentive sensitization, and that's not such an unusual story when you stop and think about it, especially for those that have uh, been introduced to substances like heroin and meth. They're so much more powerful. There's nothing, in fact, clients will sometimes ask me, they'll say, how am I gonna experience as much pleasure with whatever my previous hobbies might be or new hobbies might be? And I just tell them flat out, you won't. You won't in terms of dopamine. There's no way that you can compete with, with 12 times your normal dopamine level. I said the task is different. What you want to do, it takes a lot of work to get to this place, a lot of willpower, a lot of uh, courage, is you need to you need to drop the addictive behavior until you're back to your normal baseline so that when you experience something like the introduction of sex, it actually is experienced as double your normal baseline. Because at this point, you're competing from the, from, in a backwards way. You're competing from the top down, which is you're competing with methamphetamine or heroin. And there's no behavior that competes with those. And so it requires, first of all, sustaining sobriety. This would be the single strongest argument for sobriety I can think of right here, is if you're going to have a regulated brain, there's no way that you can compete with these substances. There's no one on the planet that can compete uh, with these substances. It's universal. You give anybody enough of this substance, and they will be hooked on it uh, from a brain perspective. Now, how does the hooking go? The way it goes with sensitization is that I end up with triggers all around the substance in terms of friends I hang out with, paraphernalia associated with the substance, the smell of it, the look of it, the buying of it. All of that gets associated with dopamine release. And as if that's not bad enough, you also have internal cues typically around stress. The single biggest trigger for relapse in addiction is stress. And stress becomes a trigger for what do I do to relieve stress? Well, I self-medicate is what I do. And so you have this inner outer triggering going on and that's getting stored and remembered in the dopamine system in the brain and it gets really locked in. And so what you end up with is you end up with the phenomenon of craving. And this is, we're really talking about the biology of craving. In the presence of triggers, my body goes into automatic pilot and that craving will always trump willpower. Generally, when I'm speaking, I say something that I want to take back. I mentioned a minute ago, I used the word willpower. Well, you just scratch that from the record, Your Honor, is that, is that it doesn't matter how much willpower I have. If I'm still exposing myself to this kind of exponential increase in dopamine, I'm had. I'm a goner. The willpower won't be able to hold up against that. Once again, our brains are hijacked. In this case, hijacked in terms of increased cravings. Um, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to have an exercise, and then I'm going to take a break to answer one of the questions that came in. It's the same as the last one, except it's a different brain change. The last time we talked about a numbed pleasure response, this time I want to ask you, imagine into, or reference your own personal experience with how uh, increased craving directly impacts relationship. If you'll take just a moment to reflect on that in your own experience, whether as addict yourself or as loved one of an addict, therapist of an addict, reflect on how it is that you see this increased craving affecting relationship. And then we'll come back to that in just a moment.
So how does the uh, uh, increased craving, the, the impact that uh, the dopamine system has on our brains, how does that manifest interpersonally in a relationship? I just drew again from some conversations I've had in recent weeks and months with clients here locally. Um, uh, one of the first things that comes to mind is that if I'm in a state of craving, it's going to make it really hard for me to pay attention to you in conversation. So I end up being very much distracted by the inner uh, uh, compulsion to use, or if it's a behavioral addiction, the same thing. And so I'm really not present. We just had a conversation in the group before I came here today. Um, we were talking about showing up in relationship, really being present, and how it is that, that uh, with any of the addictions, including the substance, it makes it really difficult to uh, be present in an attentive way. Um, somebody in the group looked at me and says, Dr. Bob, when you look at me or us when we're talking, I notice how, uh, how do you put it? He said, it's about your eyes. Your eyes are right there. And uh, I said, first of all, somebody's put it quite that way to me, something with my eye contact. And I think it's related to this, is that it wasn't always the way for uh, the case for me. And um, there are a lot of things we can do to um, build up the muscles for being able to pay attention to relationship. But again, it starts with, uh, around our addictions, it starts with sobriety. Because if I've got that dopamine system on hyper-sensitized uh, mode, by definition, I'm going to be distracted internally all of the time by that craving. And one of the things that's said about addiction is that, you know, this idea of the just say no campaign, just say no to addiction. You know, I can just say, if I'm an addict, let's say to a substance, I can just say no by not using today. I'm not going to, I'm not going to snort cocaine today. I'm not going to drink uh, alcohol today, whatever my addiction is. But what I can't tell you is that I'm going to not crave today. It's impossible for the addict to not crave built into addiction. And so distractibility, that also manifests in another form of relationship, which is a sense of disengagement, where it feels like the lights are on, but no, nobody's home. And why nobody's home is that that, that person's heart, body, soul is elsewhere uh, thinking about the addiction. It's one of the characteristics of advanced addiction, is you just find yourself thinking about your next, uh, your next fix, your next high, your next party, whatever it is, uh, more and more of the time. And it makes it really hard to engage in what you're doing. Uh, finally is irritability. If I'm constantly craving and I'm in a situation where that craving isn't being satisfied, it's going to make for an edge in my body. And it does relate to withdrawal, which we just spoke about. It also is a cognitive thing about being, being in a state of craving, um, and especially when it's unsatisfied, leaves you perpetually frustrated. There's one uh, uh, theory in psychology called the frustration-aggression hypothesis, is that in the presence of frustration, what do I do? I aggress. And irritability is a building up of aggressive energies. So those, those are three. By the way, these are just ones that have come up of the groups that I lead. My guess is that if you're doing this exercise as we go along, you're coming up with other ones. I'd be very happy to share those with the group if you want to share those with us. Just make sure to label them which brain change we're talking about. Let me pause here for just a moment and, and respond to a question that's been asked. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to respond by pushing it back. Just one more brain change, but let me respond to it. Wayne comments, he talks about, I'm just going to read what he says. My addiction started early, so my emotional and mental aspects when sober started at the age of when I started. I had a hard time with meaningful relationships because I did not know how to do that. It took a long time to get that right. And this individual has been sober over 20 years. Uh, what I want to do, Wayne, and for all of us, I want to come back to that because it really relates uh, uh, 
most powerful, I think, to the third brain change. So give me a give me a chance to go through this third brain change, and then I want to come back to that. Um, and I'll tie a little string around my finger to remind me of that. Thanks for the, the comment. And uh, it's interesting and synchronistic that you'd bring this up, Wayne, because the very last uh, group that I led last week, someone brought up this exact observation about their own experience, and we did discuss it. So I can bring it uh, uh, fresh from that uh, conversation. So let's talk about the third brain change. This is decreased control. And you might ask, well, what kind of control? And I think about this a couple of different ways. You might say decreased uh, self-control. Um, psychology tends to talk about it in terms of decreased impulse control, just for ease of memory. We're going to call it decreased control uh, today. And that relates, as I, as I kind of prefigured earlier, that relates to the front part of our brain. Uh, the front part of our brain, the outer uh, uh, cortex, that's the shell of our brain, is referred to as the neocortex. It's new, and sometimes the uh, internal parts of our brain, the ones we've been referencing that are related to survival and emotions like fear and instincts like protection, uh, fight or flight, those kinds of things, that's referred to sometimes as the old brain or the primitive uh, brain, and it just has to do with how things have evolved. Our frontal cortex as human beings is so advanced beyond other species, and it really is a new development in terms of evolution on this planet. So this neocortex is the entire frontal cortex, and the part that's right around my eyes, the prefrontal cortex, is most associated with a number of different factors. It's referred to as the executive system of the brain. It's the place out of which we make decisions. It's the place out of which we empathize and relate to others. It's the social uh, processing part of our brains. It's also related to long-term planning. It's related to moral judgment, the seat of our morale is in our prefrontal cortex. You can see where this is going, can't you? As you tie in addictions into this and they involve the prefrontal cortex, you can begin to see the impact. And we're going to flesh that out here by talking about the mechanisms of our loss of, of control uh, as, as the third major brain change. And this is the one that may show up the most radically in a relationship. The term for this, the technical term for what happens to the brain is hypofrontality. To put that in English, the front, the frontal cortex, the decision-making, executive, moral decision-making, long-term uh, uh, long judgment part of our brain, it goes offline. It's basically rendered moot. And so if you think about this, this can be a helpful metaphor, is that if the, the primitive part of the brain, right between my ears, represents the accelerator, represents what it is that's connected to impulses like fight or flight. Then the frontal cortex represents the brakes. And you remember how we talked about homeostasis earlier, is that a car needs both brakes and accelerator to be able to function. What happens if you just take the brakes away from a car? Work swimmingly until you have to stop. So it is with the human organism. As complex as we are, if you take out the frontal cortex, we're basically left with an accelerator in the center of the brain. We've already tied that into numbed pleasure response, but particularly increased cravings. And so there's going to be an increase of addictive behaviors, always increasing. And now you've just eliminated the brakes from the system. The, the, the frontal cortex is uh, no longer operative. And so this part of the brain of the cortex is trumped by what we refer to as the subcortex. Anything that's below the cortex, the subcortex, uh, effectively negates the cortex. And so once again, we have a hijacking of the brain. As, as our third exercise today, I want to ask you to consider how does this uh, brain change of uh, uh, the decrease in control, how does that show up relationally? Again, if you've been in addiction, you can reflect back on this. 
if you've been in a relationship to somebody who's addicted, you can also remember how this went. And if neither, just imagine what would happen if you took out the brakes of our brains and put us in relationship to somebody who's breakless. So give a minute to that. Just write it, write out some of your thoughts here, and then I'll summarize a few examples too. I think the answers are implied in a way that it described the function of the frontal cortex. And so if you just take the opposite of those, you'll come up with a list that looks something like this or some variation on it. If you take out my ability to control impulses arising from the, the emotional center of the brain, you're going to be left with impulsivity. <clears throat> uh, making impulsive decisions, abrupt changes in a conversation. Uh, oftentimes those abrupt changes are related to an increase in aggression. If I can't curb my impulses or my instincts or my emotions, then I'm much more likely to be not only irritable but out and out aggressive. And so there's uh, anybody that's been around addiction uh, personally or relationally understands how that's the case. And then thirdly, I mentioned how the, the frontal cortex is involved in our making long-term decisions. Take that out and then you're left with poor judgment. Um, one of the pieces, one of the ways this manifests really in a painful way in relationship is that you feel like that you know your partner, let's say, and in active addiction they become a stranger to you and make decisions that violate their own moral code, at least as you understand that. And that goes with the territory of addiction, um, is that I don't care how moral you are, how, how saint-like you are, given enough substance, given enough addiction, including addictive behaviors, and soon enough the frontal cortex is, is under, under siege. And so things that you would never think of doing, uh, you will in fact do as a function of the addiction. Uh, none of this is meant as an excuse, by the way. Uh, this information, in fact, my, my single greatest motivation for providing this information to the individuals I work with who are early in recovery from addiction is to provide some factual information as a counterpoint to the shame that otherwise comes in because there's not a, there's not a person in the room when I'm working with addicts, including myself who are in recovery, um, that haven't done things that they have bitter regret for and the shame that attaches to that will absolutely paralyze forward movement. And so an alternative is to begin to understand what happens to the brain and to actually release energy that would go in the direction of changing our lives so that we don't recommit some of these things that we've done in the past owing to hypofrontality. And so for me, this information provides a, uh, an important kind of um, uh, other position than just going the route of shame. It's understandable in a relationship how partners will say, I can't believe you did that. I'll never be able to forgive you. You meant to hurt my feelings. Those kinds of comments, all of that stuff comes up in relationship. And in light of understanding hypofrontality, what you can, you can say is that with a compromised brain, all of us do the damnedest things. And that happens in a relationship. This is, this is, again, not meant to excuse it. But if there's a way out, it's going to require being able to take this 
and and fight this face on, and shame will shut us down. It sends us in the opposite direction. So I'm very interested in unshaming the response to addiction, and that's part and parcel of our conversation here. How do we reprogram the brain to balance from the past to the now in a good relationship? Okay, I am going to try to answer both questions in one fell swoop. Let's see how it goes. Your first, que- your first observation, Wayne, was about in addiction. This is, uh, you'll actually find this a lot in recovery circles. People will say, at whatever age I became addicted, that's the age at which I developmentally got stunted. And so, for example, if I started smoking lots and lots of weed uh, at age 14, chances are that developmentally I haven't advanced beyond that. Um, and there's a way that that's true. I tend not to literalize this stuff. I think it's kind of useful to discuss it, but I want to be careful about literalizing it because I think there's all kinds of exceptions to this for sure. But let's just look at this for just a second in terms of what we talked about, Wayne, is that if you think about the frontal cortex, which is involved in social relationships, empathy, moral decision-making, and you basically expunge that from the memory banks, it's not available, and you send me through adolescence, chances are that I'm, I'm, I've got both arms tied behind my back, basically, in terms of development. And so uh, I will probably, for one thing, rely on substance in order to self-regulate, to feel better about myself because I don't have a lot of other tools. I will probably do lots of things that I'm going to regret later. And one of the things that I won't have access to is related to your second question is I won't have access to uh, intimate relationship because there's such a damper on what's possible owing to addiction. If you think about the the frontal cortex, among other things, being involved, it's actually the orbital frontal cortex right behind the eyes that it, this makes sense. What is it? The eyes are the seat of the soul. It's like our, our eyes behind our brain and that part of our brain is what connects us to others. And if that part is really uh, curtailed as it is by addiction, it's going to be very hard to form meaningful uh, relationships. And ironically, back to the poor getting poorer, the relationships that would ha- help me to heal are less accessible. And I'm kind of stuck in this uh, infinite repeat with addiction. So your question is, how do we ro- reprogram the brain to balance from the past to the now in a good relationship? My belief is that we start, first of all, it's not a belief, it's a, it's a con- deep conviction, uh, is we start, first of all, I don't uh, for once believe that everybody on the planet's addicted uh, to substance. I think that everyone's addicted to something. I tend to have that view, but I don't think it's to substance. I think, you know, between 10 and 25% of people, 10% of people are addicted to alcohol in this country. 25% are addicted to other drugs, including nicotine. So that's 20, oh, that's 25% total. That's a lot of people that are addicted. And to start to work on opening myself to relationship, which can be, I think, the single greatest healing factor in our lives is our connection to one another. To open that up is going to require my uh, sobriety. Otherwise, I'll constantly be in uh, all three of these brain changes continuing on. So that's a start, uh, Wayne, is, is we begin by, by uh, embracing and sustaining uh, recovery. Uh, but there's a second piece, is that one of the crazy things that happens Sometimes it's pre-morbid. By pre-morbid, what I mean is some people get to using various addictions because relationships in their lives aren't working. And so if they stop being addicted to the behavior or to the drug, it isn't like those relationships all of a sudden get better necessarily. And so in terms of reprogramming, first of all, sobriety, but secondly, the real world really matters, Wayne, in terms of the relationships that we're in. And so this becomes part of the work. You'll find this in the various 12-step support programs where there's a lot of focus on uh, uh, finding healthy uh, relationships in which one's recovery can, can flourish. And so if there's going to be any reprogramming that's going to go on, ideally it's going to happen in the context of facilitated relationship. 
I'm a, a big proponent of, of working with skilled helpers. This can be a minister, oftentimes it's somebody who has therapeutic training and has skills in facilitating um, uh, being able, first of all, to identify who one is and what one needs in a relationship, and then secondly, to reinforce uh, one's either creating that in current relationships or finding new relationships that are actually much more nourishing. So it's a both and. I think both sobriety, literally, and also being in relationships that will foster growth. And it's being in relationship to people, uh, others that uh, are accessible to us, that are willing to relate to us, willing to engage with us, Back to what I talked about earlier, people uh, being with others who uh, get a gleam in their eye when they see us. All of that's incredibly healing. And, it, uh, you know, you hear so much focus in psychology on the first months of life. Our needing to be in healthful relationships is a lifelong proposition. We're inherently social animals, and so uh, it's impossible for me to understand recovery and healing in any modality outside of relationship, whether it's a therapeutic relationship or another intimate relationship. Our relationships are instrumental. I just posted something this morning on my Facebook. I'll give you my website at the end of the, the presentation. I just posted a new post this morning that was looking at our brains as, as between us in the sense of that we share brains. The conventional wisdom, Wayne, is that our brains are inside our skulls. And over the more recent years, we realized the brain radiates throughout the body. So we literally have what's referred to by brain scientists as our gut brain and our heart brain, that there's, there's innervation throughout our entire bodies that are related to our nervous system. But we still typically think of our brains being inside our skulls. But if we, if we uh, look at the research that's been done in the last 20 years with brain scan technology, it's clear that our brains communicate to each other and that we affect each other. This is referred to uh, in brain science as co-regulation. We co-regulate each other. I'm, I'm calling it share, that we share brains. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to get this. It's like if somebody's upset, we get upset. If somebody's in a good mood, that can be contagious as well in a positive direction. And uh, it's really extraordinary with brain scan technology. You can, uh, we can hook Austin and Anthony here up. Uh, we can hook you up inside of a parallel tubes for uh, an MRI, for a functional MRI. It's a scan of the brain and introduce something upsetting to, to Austin. And as you guys are friends, Anthony will be affected by that and vice versa. And that's not news. It's just that you can actually see in the brain how that goes. And what's crazy about it, if Austin is in pain, the part of the brain that processes pain, the thalamus, will light up in Anthony and vice versa. And it manifests, it's exactly like being stabbed. And so when you think about, you know, think about emotional pain, like a breakup of a relationship. Is there anything that hurts as bad as that? Well, it's near the top of the list for sure. And uh, is that any less painful than being uh, stabbed? Well, the brain doesn't make a difference, and so being stabbed shows up as a thalamic uh, 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 response, and so does a breakup, emotional breakup. So pain is pain, and pain is shared this way. And so I guess I'm saying all of this to say that uh, our relationships really do matter, Wayne. I think that once having cleared up my brain from the addiction, that relationships are kind of the royal road to uh, healing uh, and getting caught up developmentally, back to your first comment, getting caught, uh, caught up developmentally, getting back on track. The marvelous thing about that is that we have what's called neuroplasticity. The brain is marvelously uh, uh, creative in healing itself and recruiting parts of the brain that were stunted at some point. And outside of extreme examples, uh, there are always exceptions, but outside of those extreme exceptions, our brains can heal themselves and we can get caught up developmentally in, in uh, a 
an oxygen-rich environment. And so I vote for oxygen-rich relationships, Wayne. Then we'll continue on for the last portion here. Um, okay, that was, that was the bad news, what I shared with you. And now I'm going to share the worst news. I can tell that I'm tired because this isn't funny. <laughs> is, that, is that not only in active addiction do you have these three brain changes, but in earliest recovery, uh, these brain changes persist. And uh, this phenomenon is referred to as post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Think about it for a second. Post-acute. So this isn't just in the acute withdrawal. Generally, most substances will pass out of my system in a week or two at the most, and my body will reset. But then I'm left with a whole host of emotional repercussions related to the addiction that will continue, and sometimes for months and months. And this can be very upsetting not only to the addict in recovery, former addict in recovery, but also to his or her uh, loved ones. Uh, for short, this is referred to as pause. You'll find a, a literature uh, in, in the addiction literature and recovery literature on pause. And so if you think about this for a second, that, that not only is it an active addiction, but there's no miracle cure. I can't stop being addicted and have everything go back to square one. It's going to be a gradual process of increased capacity coming back on board. Um, I want to ask you a question. It's, it's the fourth question of, of the day. I want to ask, how do you imagine that pause symptoms would impact relationship? And I'm going to give you a clue here. How do, we just talked about three brain changes. How do numbed pleasure, increased craving, and decreased control impact relationships? So the very things that we just talked about, imagine these going on in the early weeks and even months of recovery. And for any of you that have been in this situation, I'd like you to take a moment right now to write down your experience. And if you haven't, then imagine, based on what we've talked about, how this might show up in the context of early recovery. So we're not talking about active addiction now, we're talking about early recovery. And how might being in early recovery actually inform those three brain changes that we talked about? How might that be a different context for experiencing in relationship those changes? Now you're in early recovery. So give yourself a minute to write down some thoughts and we'll, we'll summarize and wind up for today. Okay. I wish I could read everybody's mind, find out what people are writing down right now. If, you, if you've lived in this or are living in it right now, uh, there's no question that you'll identify this. It can be an incredibly provocative time within a couple's relationship or within a family or with best friends. I'll tell you what I hear from the clients I work with who are in committed recovery from addiction, and I hear this all the time from them. I don't work as much with loved ones of those that are in addiction, although I do some of that work, and I can gather on that, and I also know my own experience around addiction and early recovery is that what you'll oftentimes get is you'll get a, an addict, a former addict who's now in recovery, who's looking awfully addicted. Because think about it, we just talked about three brain changes, significant brain changes in uh, active addiction. Those don't necessarily remit. And in fact, in some ways, they can spike up even higher early in recovery. The body is really adjusting, as is the psyche. And so guess what that feels like to the loved one? The loved one's watching their former addict partner uh, looking awfully addicted. And so you'll oftentimes have uh, indictments uh, or anger, uh, indictments that you're using again. That, that's not uncommon. I hear this from my clients. Uh, and or uh, incredibly 
angry responses that are only understandable in the context of chronic uh, being in a relationship where chronic addiction was the case. And so when it doesn't get much better, it can actually be scarier. So it actually can be harder. That's why I started by saying this is actually the worst news is that now you're in recovery. It can actually feel worse to see the individual acting as if they're uh, as if they're addicted. And I don't want to be uh, glib or naive here. It may be that there's been a relapse for sure. But what we're talking about in terms of a reaction, an understandable reaction on the part of loved ones to addicts, uh, addicts are going through their own version of this. I thought I was going to feel better now that I'm, that I'm in uh, recovery. And in fact, in some ways, I feel worse because I don't have the anesthesia of the substance, and I'm left with all of these feelings roiling through my body and through my psyche. And so it can be uh, a, tr a tremendous temptation to relapse early in recovery. That's why it's so risky. Early recovery is so risky. Is that you have the individual who's going through tempestuous overturning of emotions, and then they're in partnership to family members and other loved ones who are angry, mistrustful, understandably so. And I've had uh, any number of young men and women that I work with in recovery say that when it gets to be that way, I'll just, they'll revert to, well, I'll just show you. If you think I'm addicted, well, then I'll just be addicted. I'll go back to my, my, uh, my, my previous behavior. So it's a very dicey time, very challenging time for sure. That's why the, the, the key to early recovery, in my mind, is to make sure to get support to sustain sobriety. And by get support, I mean for everybody uh, that's involved. So all loved ones need support equally as much as the addict seeking recovery. You need to understand that recovery is for everyone, everyone in the, in the family system, everyone in the circle of loved ones, because there's, uh, there's going to be rough times ahead. Early recovery is, is extremely challenging and dicey. How long does pause last? It's a good question. I do get asked that. You might imagine the answer, but I'll just share what, I, what I, I've shared with clients. Is it so individual? It matters a lot about the individual's biology, the duration of their addiction, the actual substance, the intensity of their use. There are a number of individual factors that, that really inform this. And since we're talking about plural recovery, Angela, I'd also say that the relational matrix really matters. That, that in the context of a stable relationship in which there's support, which is almost superhuman sometimes it seems like, to be able to provide support in this early rocky time. Insofar as there's stability, that's going to aid and abet a stabilization of the, uh, of the recovering addict's uh, biology and psychology I would well imagine that what you'll have is you'll have less pronounced positives. I don't even want to talk theoretically. I know this from reading in the literature, is that the relational situation makes such a difference in terms of the course of pause. So we've talked about individual's biology, but we're also acknowledging the individual's context or relationships around them, really culture pause process. I've talked to clients that, that have minimal pause symptoms for you to know, Angela. I've talked to clients that have suffered uh, with, uh, with these uh, pronounced symptoms in the early months, oftentimes the first six months. And I've talked to clients that have talked about two years later still having these pockets that rise up. You just have a bad day or a bad week, and it's like you're back to square one. This can send uh, waves of fright to the relationship with the partner because, once again, it looks like the person has relapsed. They haven't. They've just in encountered one of these gaps or one of these pockets, and uh, they can be quite severe and startling. So I don't want to be depressing about this because my sense of it is you have a stepwise progression out of pause into a recovered brain soon enough, and I think it goes like this. That's kind of going your direction. Is that you, it, I say stepwise because it's, it's more jagged than a straight line. But uh, the good news is that 
a one month, I, I can speak from experience, I see clients that come in to the treatment center here locally who come in and I see them literally, I just saw someone last week, I just saw someone last week, I went out to one of the residences and led a small group there with the staff and a couple of the clients. I saw him last week, he came into my group this afternoon right before I came here and he was completely alert, participating and actually was one of the peer leaders in the group and that would have seemed impossible as recently as a week ago. And so just to see what happens to the recovering brain, I see that again and again, uh, that it's amazing to me in a week or two or three how much recovery um, can take place in a brain. But we have to be patient with this also and realize that in terms of really getting to where you have a sturdy foundation, that can take weeks or even months sometimes. The good news is that in committed recovery, the rich get richer. We talked earlier about a, a vicious cycle going ever downward. I think of this in terms of an adaptive spiral going ever upward. And I say spiral because it's not a straight line. It's, it's uh, ebb and flow for sure in terms of recovery. And I want to contextualize this too, is that, that we've been talking about brain changes. We've been talking about post-acute withdrawal syndrome, how these affect relationship, is that you get a synergy going on, is that as the former addict is in recovery and begins to sustain some, some sobriety, as the brain regulates, that individual is bringing much more presence, much more of a, a, a capacity to experience joy or pleasure uh, back in the relationship again. The ability to have a resting, relatively speaking, a resting of the previous almost obsessive craving, which makes it possibly much more present in relationship. And uh, uh, finally, uh, the reemergence of empathy and caring and uh, like a moral foundation that may have been missing in active addiction. And so you can imagine the contribution this is to the relationship. And in the presence of a supportive, and I would say uh, patient other, significant other, uh, that the relationship reflects what's going on within the individual is the relationship gets richer and richer too. I think there's an adaptive spiral and I see this again and again. I'm uh, commencing with some work right now with a couple that's dealing with uh, issues around uh, early addiction recovery and I have every confidence. I don't feel like I'm speaking out of terms, I have every confidence that if there is a commitment to recovery on the part of both partners is that they will see concrete results for sure and I'm looking forward to that work. If there's a mantra here, it's that there is hope, and I hope that that's implied in what we're talking about. I think sometimes it takes looking at the dark side of addiction and really understanding it to begin to move towards uh, interventions and techniques, uh, methods for uh, building a recovered brain and recovered relationships. And so we've taken kind of an unsparing look today at the biology of addiction and of pause, but then that allows for us to move into uh, conversations about healing. I'll tell you where I want to go next week, y'all, is the next week's presentation is is going to be addressing shame and its relationship to addiction and shame and its relationship to uh, early recovery. And I'll be speaking about shame kind of in the same spirit as today. I want to talk about shame in terms of the impact, uh, the negative impact that it can place on, uh, on the recovering addict for sure, but also its relationship to to uh, perpetuating active addiction, but I'll also be wanting to talking uh, talking about the alleviation of shame. Uh, the groups I lead at the local treatment center on Wednesdays, we used to call them, I run a men's group, we call it the men's shame group. And I realized at some point that that was a huge misnomer. Uh, that's not how I wanted to advertise this group. And so we invented a word uh, for our group and it's now the men's unshaming group. And so next week's presentation will be shame on shame and unshaming. 
in relationship to addiction and recovery. I, I hope that you all will come back. I definitely believe that there's hope here. Oh, I mentioned earlier, if you want to go to my blog site, uh, if you want to go to my, uh, actually my website in which the blogs that I mentioned are located, uh, it's right here. It's, it's uh, drbobweathers.com. And uh, uh, there's a place where you can respond. I'd love to, to hear your responses to what I've written. I also uh, uh, publish those blogs on Facebook under uh, Robert Weathers. And uh, if you're a Twitter uh, fan or Tumblr or Instagram, I put this stuff out there because I care about it. I'll finish with this. Today, in our conversation in the group, we were talking about flow. It kind of emerged as we were talking about being present again. Remember how we talked about how it is that the distracted brain, uh, especially by cravings, can't, can't uh, fully be present to others? Uh, and I would say can't fully be present to ourselves. And so we were talking in the group about flow, about being in a flow state of where you're just completely immersed and you lose a sense of time, you lose a sense of self-consciousness, and that we associate that so much with deep happiness or contentment. And then someone looked at me and they said, Dr. Bob, are you in flow right now? And I said, yes, I am actually. I really, uh, I really am. There's no place, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not thinking about where else I'd rather be. I'm not thinking, I said, I get paid to do this, uh, but, uh, so it's work in that way, but I don't think of this as work. There's work I do where it feels like work. It's like, it's work, it's work. Uh, which would be to say, I haven't been ingenious enough yet to find flow in some, some of the work I do. But this today is flow, and... Um, and the best of what we're wanting to reclaim as our birthright as humans is to find a way back into flow. One of the things we talked about in the group is that all of us in that room, including myself, found a way via addiction to uh, come up with counterfeits for flow. It's like, I, I just want to be in the moment. I want to forget time. That sounds a lot like being high. And within reason, that's, you know, in terms of, you know, the social use of alcohol, and so I have nothing against that. I think that it's fine and dandy, but for the portion of the population that is prone or vulnerable to addiction or has been addicted, you remember how I mentioned increased sensitization? What happens in the brain of somebody who's been addicted is that you're forever sensitized to that particular substance. And it makes it really challenging. The research is not very hopeful. If, for example, if I've been addicted to alcohol, which I have been, that I'm not a good candidate for going back uh, to using alcohol uh, or other substances or other behaviors because of their addictive potential with my biology and my psychology. And so I, it's, in, it's imperative that I find some way back to flow that is not addiction related. And my sense of it, I like how they talk about this in the Eastern religions, is that flow is our original face before we were born. All of us have experiences of flow. In fact, infants, I've done a fair bit of reading in infant research, infants are born just kind of naturally in a flow state. My daughter Amanda gives birth to her, her second child next week, <laughs> God willing. And uh, this new granddaughter of mine will be born in a state of kind of a global flow. And... Uh, uh, it is really our original experience, and it's something that, that isn't just an infant's experience. It's a wish over a course of our lives to cultivate a he healthy relationship between engaging with others uh, in the world and our work, uh, as well as to uh, resource uh, flow. And so uh, in that spirit, I leave you with a wish for flow for all of us. We'll be, we'll be uh, continuing to follow this through. That's really the aim. It helps, I think to know what we're aiming for here. And we're aiming for health and whole, wholeness and a return to something that is our original face. Thank you for joining us today. Blessings to you.